So, with that, uh, it's hard to believe we're at our fourth session. Um, a week has gone by quickly. I'm sure you feel like you've been trying to take a sip of water out of a fire hose, but that's just the way our my, that's just the way our adult VBSs always end up because uh, we look at a topic and try to look at a topic deeply during uh, during adult VBS. Um, Monday, Tuesday, and Wednesday were just wonderful topics that fill me with delight and joy, and I'm really for the, grateful for the opportunity to be able to talk about Methodist history and theology, and even polity or government. I'm delighted to talk about that. Uh, today, our topic, I come to with a mixture of great hope, excitement, anticipation, um, and some sadness. Uh, and some um, angst over the process. Uh, Some of you may know what's going on in the present-day United Methodist Church. Some of you may know a little bit. Some of you may be totally confused by a lot that I talk about this morning because you've lived your life the last decade and haven't been paying attention to all things United Methodist at 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 a denominational level, at a general church level. So um, we are going to be talking about recent history uh, and events of recent history in the United Methodist Church. Um, we are at a pivotal, pivotal, definitive moment, um, season in United Methodism. So before I kind of, we'll go over the handout I gave you. I'll do a history, tell you how we got to where we are, then talk about the protocol you will, you will know all about the, or a lot about the protocol by the time you leave here. Um, but before I delve into that, because I've, I've, this has been a big part of my world. Uh, it, become a, it will become a bigger part of my world. Uh, so uh, as I keep reflecting on these present days and sort of the facts and the challenges of these present days, uh, I come up with some major takeaways that I encourage people to hold on to uh, as we um, make our journey through the next few years. Because it, it, it will be a bumpy journey at points. Uh, we have 2,000 years of Christian history. Uh, some, of, some people like me, I just, you know, when the 5th century rolls around again, I'll be ready because I'm all about the 5th century. But most people just know what they know. They know the age in which they live. They know, they know the time frame of their life. Um, and that's okay. That's probably the way it's meant to be. But, um, you know, we have 2,000 years of history. So we know we, we've got a lot of data as to how God renews the church, how God reforms the church. And um, because I know how God historically renews the church, how God historically reforms the church, um, I have great hope and excitement and anticipation uh, with, with a tinge of sadness and some angst over what we're living through. After I kind of tell you the story of recent years, that, that will make better sense to you because uh, I've, I've lived part of it. But here's the takeaways that I want you to keep coming back to and not lose sight of. Um, Teresa of Avila, one of my favorite saints from church history, famous quote, all will be well, all manner of things will be well. So, remember that. Um, God's got this. This is the way God renews the church. 
denominational shifts and the birth of new denominations is nothing new. This congregation right here at Wesley Memorial Church has been a part of four different Methodist denominations. You may or may not know that. You have been Methodist. You've been Methodist Protestant. I take that back. You've been Methodist Episcopal, then Methodist Episcopal South, then Methodist, then United Methodist. You know, and those shifts were made in the life of the local church. And I'm not sure the people in the local church noticed a lot of difference. But yeah, you, you, you've, um, and, and usually for most of the time, you just kept the word Methodist on your sign. Uh, believe me, you did not put, when, for, for, the first, for the first 80 years of your history, you did not put on, I'm assuming, you may have, I'm assuming you did not put on your sign out front, um, uh, Weston Memorial <coughs> Methodist Episcopal Church South. I mean, that's a mouthful. Uh, my guess is you just had Wesley, maybe one or two words, Wesley Methodist and Church or something. But anyway, so um, again, I, I take the long view. I take the historical view, and I say all will be well. Part of that is what I know from history, and part of that is my faith in God. All that we've talked about this week, our optimism in God. Uh, God can do great things. Now, most of the time, when God does great things in our lives, it feels a little like childbirth. Now, I can't talk from first-hand experience, <laughs> but I've watched it up close. And you know, I'm, I'm amazed that anyone has child number two. Um, but childbirth, the pains of childbirth are worth it. Um, some surgeries are worth it. Um, going to the dentist is worth it. So... Um, you know, we can look at a lot of life, even though it involves some pain or some chaos or some confusion, and our faith should tell us all, all will be well. All will be well. Not, not, not that all will be easy, but all will be well. So hold on to that. The other thing that I believe deeply, and I'm telling my colleagues, and a lot of them did better with this a year ago than they are right now, is I think going into this time period that you're going to learn about, You've got to stay committed to your, your, your basic desire being that each conference, church, and clergy end well. And what I mean by end well, what I want for every conference, that's our regional area, and every church and every clergy is that they, they have the freedom to follow the Spirit, to follow their heart, to follow their convictions, and end where God would have them end. Um, either you stay focused on this or the other alternative, which does happen when divorces occur, the other alternative, um, rather than the ending well for everybody, the other alternative is coercion and manipulation. Trying to get conferences, churches, and clergy to do what you want them to do. Um, that's happening. I mean, I don't have any illusions about human nature. And we can talk about some of that. I'll probably give you enough examples that um, you won't have any illusions about human nature either. But I, I think we have to stay committed to just seeking every conference church clergy ending well. Because we're going to be faced with some decisions. And, you know, rather than me coerce and manipulate you into doing what I think you should do, we, we need to be able to follow the Spirit, enter a period of discernment and prayer and end well. So I think being focused on that is important. 
Another thing you need to be focused on, because the media will screw you up on this one, the secular media. This is not just about who, who is loving and who is not, or just about human sexuality. Now, when I give you the history in a few moments, you'll see that some of the issues revolving around human sexuality have been the spark that have brought a hundred years of history to, to a um, climax, boiling point, depth, or whatever. It's a hundred years of history. But um, in some ways, and I'll illustrate, but in some ways, issues around human sexuality has been the spark that has caused some things to start to happen. Um, and there are people, like we always do, think about just Americans in general, you know, they just want to oversimplify things <clears throat> and sort of paint a picture saying, well, I'm the loving one, you aren't. End of discussion. Well, that's way too simplistic. So to think is either about love, who we love, who we include, who we welcome, and, and human sexuality, that's a piece of it, but those are more symptomatic of much, much deeper issues. Now, when the newspaper, the secular media writes, they're going, they're going, they're going by, by this point in this week, you should know that our history, our tradition is rather complicated. And we've all only been around 250 years. Christian church has been around 2,000 years. Well, the popular media will boil it down to six sentences. And for some people, that's all they know. They, they oversimplify. They don't even understand our language. They don't understand our labels. So like I've been telling people for a couple of years, uh, I can give you some, new, some church news sources to read um, that, that, that do have a much better handle um, on something as complex as Christian dom domination. There will be a realignment. There will be. There will be. Now, none of us like change, particularly if change costs us anything. Uh, for instance, what I mean by realignment, um, and I'll go back through the history in just a moment, but when General Conference 2019 happened, and of course the media was right there, and I'll tell you all about that in a minute, um, what went out in the newspaper was, um, you know, the United Methodist Church voted to maintain, to maintain, most people miss that word, voted to maintain our traditional stand regarding marriage and ordination. Well, for whatever reason, people, some people who have been in the Methodist churches forever did not know that had been our stand forever, just like the Roman Catholics, just like the Greek Orthodox. Um, but some people, that woke them up. They saw the news, the secular news coming out of um, um, St. Louis, where, where the General Conference happened. And like in this particular church here, we lost one couple. Um, who I think, I think they knew the stand. They didn't like our stand. And they kept hoping, like a lot of people, that it would change eventually. But democracy is wonderful until you don't, don't, don't get your way. Um, anyway, so the church did not vote to, to change the stand. And they, they went somewhere else, which is good. Because, again, number two, I want everybody to follow the Spirit, follow their heart, and end well. I, this was it. With this particular couple, I had a conversation, blessed them, sent them on their way. We still have communication, but they're in a place uh, that, that um, does ministry a little differently from traditional churches. Um, but there will be a realignment, and it's always painful. I don't want to lose, well, there's almost nobody I want to lose from the life of the church. Um, there may be a, 
There may be a, a small, small group, but none of us want to lose. I want everybody to be in my church with me forever. That usually doesn't happen anyway. But um, there will be a realignment, and that's part of the angst too. None of us like that. For a hundred years, um, First Methodist downtown was the Methodist Protestant Church, and we were the Methodist Episcopal Church. And that's why we were, back in the old days, old, older folks tell me, we were both on Main Street, and we were real close to each other on Main Street. Um, but one was Methodist Protestant, one was Methodist Episcopal. Then in 1939, when we merged, both of us were there as Methodist churches, and then we're here as United Methodists. But we, we've, as Protestants, as Protestants, we believe... We believe that spiritual unity can exist without organizational unity. We loved, you know, for those hundred years, we loved the people at First Methodist, even though they were Methodist Protestant. They didn't like bishops. We were Methodist Episcopal. We had bishops. We had divided chancels. They did not. We tended to wear robes. They did not. We had higher standards for our ordination than Methodist Protestant did. The Methodist Protestant Church founded High Point College. We didn't hate each other. We, we had a lot of spiritual unity. We were parts of different families. Um, but we Protestants, whether we acknowledge or not, we figured it out at the Protestant Reformation that um, you can have spiritual unity without organizational unity. I hope so because my Catholic friends tell me there are 6,000 Protestant denominations. You know, I don't think there's that many. Who knows? There's probably been one, de- one develops as, since we've been talking in here this morning. Now, in the Roman Catholic tradition, and one of you asked me about communion, in the Roman Catholic tradition, they can't envision spiritual unity without organizational unity. They can't envision spiritual unity without a connection uh, surrounding the Bishop of Rome. They're getting a little better. In Vatican II, they, they changed from us being outside the church schismatics. Then they, now they define us. And this is better, not where I wish it would be. They define us as separated brethren. But we're brethren. That was a big step forward for them in 1964 because they can't fathom spiritual unity to that organizational unity. We Protestants, at least if we'll admit it, we can, we can fathom that. A lot of times I can find uh, some Lutherans, some uh, Roman Catholics, some Presbyterians, some Baptists that I feel a greater spiritual unity with than some United Methodists who share my organization. So that's just the way it is. I mean, there, there will be a realignment, and we're fine with that. We, we should be as Protestants. Because, um, again, we're number two. Number two. That's, I, I think one of the reasons God allows for lots of denominations. You know, we need churches for introverts. We need churches for extroverts. We need churches who like loud music. We need churches who sit in silence. I, I mean, God, God appreciates humanity and our differences. So, you know, we're not negative about denominations. I'm hearing some of my United Methodist brothers and sisters who are pleading for unity stronger than any of my Catholic friends ever did to me. You know, I mean, I, I hear some of our colleagues in the United Methodist Church pleading for unity to such a degree, and I've told several of them, if I really accept what you've said, I've got to go back to the Church of Rome, at least to the Church of England, you know. But, you know, it's hard as a Protestant in a, in a Wesleyan tradition. Now, Wesley, Wesley died in Anglican. He never left the Church of England 
probably because he didn't want any of his movement to be legally, legally declared nonconformist in England. That made a whole lot of problems if you were a nonconformist church in England. Presbyterian, a Lutheran, Quaker, that's nonconformist because Church of England is a state church. Still is. Who's the head of the Church of England? Queen. The Queen. It's still a state church. John Wesley stayed part of that state church. He said a lot of reasons, but I honestly think a lot of it was to, to, to prevent some of the um, uh, issues that we would have had to deal with. So he didn't split, but he wasn't hardly cold in the grave before his followers split. And, of course, we split in 1784 from England. So, um, yeah, we Protestants just do this stuff. Uh, Martin Luther, John Calvin, John, we do this stuff because we, we believe there can, be, there can be spiritual unity, that organization unity. Number five, I spend a lot of time talking to my colleagues. I, I never wanted to be, well, I never wanted to be an elder statesman. I never wanted to be elder. Um, I'm still grieving that I turned 60 last week. Uh, on New Year's Eve this year, when Tammy and I went to bed, we made herself stay up to midnight. When we went to bed, Tammy said, what do you want for the year 2021? And I just I quickly said, I don't want to turn 60. So my wife's been lecturing me, and I'm fine. I'm over it. I'm grateful. I, I, I still think I'm 35 years old. I don't know who that 60-year-old people are talking about. But anyway, um, because I'm kind of an elder statesman in the church now, and I've served on the cabinet, I get phone calls every day from clergy, colleagues, people trying to navigate this or navigate what I'm getting ready to bring to you. Uh, but I always say to the colleagues, don't make our present situation and the choices that will be before us at some point don't make that the focus of your ministry, but be educated, uh, which has been um, uh, the, the, the tact that me and the staff here have taken. Um, you know, when we get closer to general conference, when we, even, even when, we know general, when we know general conference will happen, when we get closer to general conference, I'll do like I did right before 2019 general conference. I'll do some church-wide education. But I've learned over the years with, with General Conference, who speaks on behalf of the United Methodist Church, when, when I, when, if you educate for General Conference too far in advance, by the time you get there, everything you said is irrelevant because things change. I want to at least be close enough to General Conference to know what's going to General Conference to be voted on. Now we think we know, but we keep moving the date of General Conference out because of COVID. Um, we think, because there should have been a general conference in 2020, it did not happen. We now have one scheduled for, uh, and then, then we said 2021 did not happen. We've got one scheduled for next year now in the latter part of August, beginning of September. Uh, there are voices pleading to move it, and there's some voices, such as me, pleading to make it happen. Uh, we need to make sure the Africans can get here. We need to make sure they're vaccinated. We need to make sure that people from around the world can get visas to come. But, you know, one thing that um, Methodists don't agree on a lot of stuff, but most Methodists, it's changing a little bit as I speak, but most Methodists are at the point of saying, we've got to do something. We've been fighting this strongly since 1972. United Methodist Church was only formed in 1968. Um, so everybody's kind of in agreement. Wherever they think they may land, everybody's in agreement. Let's bring this to an end, which the protocol is our, we'll talk about that, it's our well-thought-out way of perhaps bringing it to an end.
Um, we'll see. But anyway, don't make it the focus of your ministry, but be educated. Um, so, I mean, there's some stuff on our website. There's a link on our website. Uh, we'll deal, and I, I've offered to speak to groups. A few groups have taken me up on it. But eventually we'll do church-wide stuff when we, when we know what we're facing when we're, and when we're going to face it. But I'm not going to make it the f- focus of our ministry. Um, Jesus didn't say go into all the world and figure out the United Methodist Church. That wasn't the Great Commission. So hold this in mind as I give some history and end with the protocol. And let me say, you know, the obvious. It's my mouth moving, so you're getting my perspective. You know, I've got colleagues that I love, um, and we're working hard to keep loving each other, that would present what I'm going to present differently. And um, that's okay. I keep reminding them of number two. But um, that's okay. But obviously, if it's coming out of my lips, it's me. So uh, I'm going to present it from my perspective. I I think my perspective has some validity. I was a delegate at the last two general conferences. I've been, um, um, I've been in the conference 38 years. I've served small churches. I've served large churches. I served on the bishop's cabinet as a district superintendent in, the, in, in, in managing the hierarchy and the church. Uh, I've been guest lecturer in Methodist polity and history at two different seminaries. So I, I think my perspective is worth listening to. And again, what you know about me now, my perspective is not based on how I feel. You know, a lot of my colleagues right now are making all their decisions because of how they feel emotionally about where we're at right now. And I get it. I told you I brought some sadness and some angst to this. But I really try uh, to to face it with with anticipation and excitement and faith that this is going to be a good thing. God is doing a new thing, but yes, it feels like childbirth. And um, some people just would prefer God not to do a new thing rather than go through childbirth. Uh, And that's not my perspective from history or from my faith. So with that being said, let me set you some recent history. Um, And some of this will be completely reviewed for some of you. Some of you may find this fascinating and can't even keep up with me. Again, the General Conference is the governing body of the church. General Conference speaks on behalf of the United Methodist Church, i.e., the the Council of Bishops do not. Um, or any individual does not. Council of Bishops, bishops are present at general conference. They cannot even vote. They get to preside. In our tradition, bishops um, don't speak for the church. They, they administrate the church. They're ordained. They're part of our ordination to order, to administration. So only general conference can speak. The people who have been failing to get out of general conference what they wanted they're almost at the point of ignoring that there is a general conference. You know, to the point that when, I, when they hear people like me talk about possibilities coming out of general conference, they don't even like us to talk about it because they want to pretend general conference doesn't happen. General conference still speaks on behalf of the United Methodist Church. That's that global delegation made up of a little better than 800 um, delegates from around the world. The delegates are elected from each annual conference, each region, depending upon how many Methodists are in that region. I told you we were a fairly large um, Methodist conference, and we get 12 clergy delegates and 12 lay delegates. 
So we have lots of annual conferences to get two lay delegates and two clergy delegates. Um, but because of the dramatic growth in places like Eurasia and Africa and the Philippines, uh, their numbers are growing as far as delegates to general conference, which is why with each passing general conference every four years, except during COVID, with each passing general conference, our stands have become increasingly more conservative. Now, again, when you talk about a conservative Methodist, I'm probably would look like a, a, a moderate Baptist. So you have to watch these labels. You know, conservative Methodists still believe in women's ordination. Conservative Methodists still believe in doing what we can to push forward minorities. So, you know, a conservative Methodist and a conservative Baptist would be very different. And even I, one of my Catholic priest friends said to me one day, if you think Protestant fundamentalists are hard to deal with, let me introduce you to some Catholic fundamentalists. <laughs> so we, we all have that. Um, but General Conference still speaks on behalf of the church, that global body. Um, I was a delegate at the last two general conferences. Uh, in 2016, that was a normal general conference, which means 10 days we were gathered in Portland, Oregon. Portland, Oregon. We were gathered in Portland, Oregon from around the world. Um, you know, the 800 plus of us, their delegates were on the main floor. Uh, we're always surrounded by the Coliseum chairs, the stadium seat. People can get in. You have to go through um, metal detectors and such, but you can get in to watch the proceedings on the main floor. And it's amazing. The stands are full. People want to come watch us. Um, you know, Methodist Church is the second largest Protestant denomination. So um, in, in Portland, uh, and, and in 2012 and in 2008, 2008 and 2000, really since 1972, we had been presented every year with a barrage of um, a barrage of petitions. Any Methodist can petition an annual conference, and if the annual conference passes it, it gets passed on general conference. And that's why when you have ten days, the first week basically is given in committee meetings to work through multitude of petitions, and then uh, then either then the last week or so is in is is in the full body where you either pass you either prove that what the committees have done or not um 10 days in portland uh and we were of course like has our been our history with the barrage with all these petitions to take out any negative language from the discipline regarding homosexual activity that's usually the flashpoint uh one of the things we say and i'll give you an example of what's in the discipline uh, one of the things we say, and 38 years ago, I could have never imagined that we'd be almost killing each other over this. We say in the discipline, if you're ordained, you have to vow to be, to be celibate in singleness and faithful in marriage. Now, you get that, right? If you're not married, don't mess with people. Celibate in singleness, faithfulness in marriage. Um, that is highly controversial, has been for 20 years now. Because that, now, that we, now that there is same-sex marriage, that complicates it a little bit. But before there was same-sex marriage, you know, basically what we've said, which is what the Roman Catholics say, the Greek Orthodox say, that you can, have, you can have whatever feelings you want, you can have whatever emotions you want, you can have any orientation you want. But if you are not married, you have to not have sex. 
Uh, we, so, we, so we've always said to certain people, and we've always had people do what they want to do anyway, but we've always said to certain people, if you're not married and you're heterosexual and not married, uh, you, you abstain from sexual activity till marriage. Um, and then we've said, if you're married, you, you can't, it's got to be monogamy. Um, I had somebody who was fighting for bisexual rights. And I remember I asked, I said, okay, bisexual, L, because LBGTQ, it, what, we, what we are mindful of now is LBGQ, LBGTQ+. Plus. Um, so when we're being barraged by all the LBGTQ plus activists, um, which we've been barraged with them increasingly, it really ramped up in the 90s. It mirrors our culture. It ramped up in the 90s and the, in the 2000s. I remember talking to one person who was pushing the LBGTQI plus agenda. And I was just curious about the B, bisexuality. And I said, doesn't bisexuality imply more than one partner? And this person said, yes, but we just say one at a time. <laughs> so, yeah, hear that as an African coming over here, who we made them put away their multiple wives. We made them put away their ancestor worship. We made them, and they come over here now and they say, you want what? Anyway, that's... That's my perspective. So we've increasingly uh, been um, confronted with this. The groups that fight this, uh, their plan has been, and they're very upfront about it, they are to disrupt. You know, like the, at, in 2016, we tried to have a, a normal general conference. About the same thing happened in 2012. Uh, the first five days, we could transact no business at all. General conference cost you $1,300 a minute to put on. Uh, first five days, we couldn't transact any business because they're trying to find an end run around normal parliamentary democratic procedure at general conference because they know when the vote happens what the vote's going to be. So five days, delay, um, uh, disrupt, that's the, that's the plan. I, I've got good friends on that side. They're great people. But that's not my personality. Uh, delay, disrupt. So finally, I voted against it, but finally some people, it was bad. I mean, five days of just fighting. We can't even transact business, and we're costing the church a lot of money. So after, on the fifth day, we, we decided in good Methodist fashion to table all of the petitions that had to do with human sexuality and to um, um, give them to a committee to bring us back proposals in 2019. You know, that barely passed. It only passed by 25 votes. That was the commission, the way forward. Because a lot of people were in the room saying, of course, major debate goes on before the vote. We have been prayerfully sent here to speak on behalf of the church. Let us speak. But see, the issue was if the vote had been taken, we have 50 years history of this, we know what the vote would have been we would have come down the side of traditional, um, traditional human sexuality, morality issues. That's, that's the way it would have happened. Well, so, but finally we, we did. It passed by 25 votes. We pulled all of the stuff off the table um, concerning human sexuality. So that meant um, we could proceed with business. 
They quit shouting at us. They quit marching around us. One time they marched, they, they marched around us for 28 minutes um, shouting their slogans at us. Um, it was really interesting because I did the math. We had just been told it cost $1,300 a minute for general conference. I did the math, 28 times 1300 You know, I'm thinking, is this, is this worth it? And the answer I got back was when, a, when an institution refuses to listen, any activity is justified. Anyway, but when we finally pulled it off the table, they quit shouting. They let us go on with business. Uh, there, there were tents. We were in Portland. There were tents surrounding the um, convention center of all these. And the, the, what they were doing in, our, in that protest was saying, we, don't, we won't let them in. I kept saying, come on, I'll take you. Not full inclusion. You know, we, what, what shifted in the last 50 years is I, you know, I've always been very welcoming, very, very accepting, very including of anybody who will come to Western Memorial Church. And I think we still are. Now, but that's not enough in this culture. And you know this. You've got to be affirmed and celebrated. Or they don't feel like you're really doing inclusion. They don't feel like you're really doing love. My answer to that's always been, I don't affirm me on most days. And there's certainly a lot about my life I don't affirm. But yeah, I, I had somebody at General Conference shout at me that you should look at my son and, and, and declare them perfect. And they weren't talking Methodist perfection. My, my general response was, well, if, if, I, if I view humanity that way, I'm out of work. What's the purpose of the church? What, do, what are you giving me to sanctify? What are you giving God to sanctify? If we are perfect and should be affirmed as we're born. And that's an issue now. People are born certain ways. So therefore, well, not from a Christian perspective, we are born broken. We don't affirm people just because they're born a certain way. We, that's why, again, I baptize your baby because your baby needs Jesus. Um, anyway, but that's where we're at. Well, being welcoming and accepting and including, um, not acting in a judgmental way, doing kindness and love is, is not enough. And I, I've got... People I love deeply on this side. So that's why I, I think I kind of know the argument well. Um, and I understand why they say, but to exclude uh, self-avowed, this is our language, self-avowed practicing homosexuals from the ministry, ordained ministry. Now, again, we're like Roman Catholics and the rest of the world. You can be homosexual, just be celibate. You can be heterosexual and not married, be celibate. That's what we've said for 2,000 years. But um, and that's why the discipline says we will not ordain self-avowed practicing homosexuals. Um, we do say in the discipline, because it got put in in the early 70s, 72. It got put in in 72, and nobody hardly noticed in 72. That was put in. The other thing that was put in in 72, because we Methodists, this probably is a fault. We have to legislate and pontificate on everything, and we have. Uh, we also put in the discipline in 1972 that homosexual activity, not homosexual orientation, but the acting on it, homosexual activity is incompatible with the Christian lifestyle. I understand that in San Francisco those statements are problematic. But what I've watched in the last 30 years, they become problematic everywhere. They have. Um, I remember... Three or four years ago, I was in New York City visiting my son. By the way, full disclosure, my son makes his living working for extremely left-wing politicians. He is a brilliant consultant. Uh, my daughter-in-law, um, 
is in leadership with the American Civil Liberties Union. So yeah, we've had some interesting discussions. I mean, they view the faith and Christianity in the church, but it's been helpful to me because I kind of see what the end game is, what they, what they seek out of society. Anyway, I was in New York City. I love my children. I can love people that disagree with me. We've forgotten how to do that in this culture. I love my son and daughter-in-law. Um, we play cards. We go travel. We eat meals. We don't talk politics or religion. But we love each other. Anyways, we were visiting my son and daughter-in-law in New York City. And I, I, when I go away, I love to go to churches. Um, so we went to an early mass at St. Patrick's and then went around the corner to Marble Collegiate, uh, Vincent Peale's old church. It used to be Dutch Reformed because a member of our annual conference, one of our clergy was pastor at Marble Collegiate. So, and I was his district superintendent. So I, I paid a pastoral visit in New York City. I went to St. Patrick's and went around to Marble Collegiate, the Protestant church. Well, when I was at St. Patrick's, the big cathedral, all these protesters out front protesting because of the Catholic Church's stand. It's the world we live in. I get it. It's the world we live in. Um, uh, anyway, this is the world we live in. That's, and, 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 that, and, and, you know, the church is made up of human beings who live in this culture. And so uh, we, we did pass that we were going to table everything, give it to a committee, and, and have a special call general conference. We, we couldn't solve it in a 10-day general conference in Portland or a 10-day general conference in Tampa, but we're going to solve this in a three-day special call general conference. Yeah, does it sound stupid? I, I voted against it. I mean, I'm like, I was, everybody, everybody knew, at, and, and for some people, this was okay. This is what they wanted at this point. Let's kick the can down the road because this is so painful. We can't deal with it. So, yeah, we came down the road. I think we thought 2019 would never come. It came. So here we're called back into session in St. Louis to deal with just these issues. Now, over the course of three years, um, three, the committee proposed three plans. Um, and right before that general conference, which would have been February of uh, 2012, uh, right before that general conference, I had somebody come in and present all three plans to a church meeting downstairs in the dining room. Because at that point, I knew they weren't going to change, hopefully, between January and February. We, we talked about the three plans. The three plans, if you remember, we had lots of conversation before general conference 2019. The three plans were, um, well, obviously, the, the traditional plan, things are as they are which is in accordance with 9% of Christianity around the world. You're getting my bias. We had um, a, a completely mind-boggling plan by one of my heroes in the church who was trying to help us work things out, um, a, a jurisdictional model, which what that basically was, much more complicated than this, before 1968, like here in High Point, um, both Memorial Church over on Cedro, and Wesley Memorial were United Methodist churches, but before 19, or Methodist church, before 1968, even though we were both, we were in different conferences because they were in the black conference, we were in the white conference. Now, we did away with that in 68, thank God. We did away with that in 68, but the memories of that jurisdictional system lingered. So when, when, they, when this other plan said, let's create a jurisdiction where we can have churches in the same city, one be in the traditional wing, one be in the non-traditional wing. Well, I, I thought it was just too complicated. General Conference couldn't even wrap their brain around the complexity of it. And the memories of segregation lingered. 
then there was another plan, seen sort of as a middle plan, which is the plan that has happened in all of your mainline Protestant churches in America. Southern Baptists don't usually get in that mix, but it's happened in your Presbyterian, Episcopal, Lutheran church. Um, it was called the one church model. That every church, every pastor just sort of decide for himself or herself what their view, what their stand was. And there were a lot of people. I, I wasn't one of them because I'm a realist, and I, I kind of, I really can't do math well, but I can hear what other people do with math. I, I kind of knew what the votes were going to be at General Conference. A lot of people, particularly in the United States, thought that one church model would pass because it seemed like a compromise. Now, interestingly enough, my son and daughter-in-law, they thought that one church model was the most bizarre of the three. So, because in their mind, think about what world they come from. In their mind, they are looking at me saying, so dad, you're going to say that in the United Methodist Church, this pastor can believe in segregation, this pastor cannot, and they can do as they like. Because in their mind, this issue is akin to slavery and all these other issues. So, that, so in their world, giving local option... They thought that was just bizarre. And that's what happened at General Conference, both on the left and on the right. That didn't satisfy anybody because there's firm conviction as what is right or what is wrong. So the one church model, we voted against it twice. We voted it down twice. Now, some of our great leadership, part of this realignment, part of this realignment is we've all lost friendship. We've lost friends and we've gained some friends. Um, but um, a lot of the, particularly a lot of the leadership in the American church were heavily invested in that one church model. And uh, so, yeah, they're emotional. Uh, we're in the, fr- we're, we're in the, um, on the, on the gr- ground level of some indoor football stadium. You can tell I don't do sports. Some indoor football stadium in St. Louis. Y'all may know what football stadium is. We're on the ground level. We are surrounded by, um, by guests. By visitors, learn later. Well, I'll tell you how I learned in a minute. We all learn later. They basically a whole bunch of them have been shipped in to yell at us and to scream at us. And so, as we reaffirm the traditional model twice, um, and granted, the last time it was reaffirmed is fifty three percent to forty seven percent. So we're a divided church, I and mean, that shows the division. But um, after we reaffirmed it the second time. Yeah, the language racketed up, the rhetoric racketed up. Um, and I was, I was one of maybe two. I think I was the only one. I'm being very honest here, and I, I said you get my perspective because my lips are moving. I was, we had 12 clergy representing Western North Carolina at, gen, at that general conference. Uh, I was one of maybe two, but I think I was the only one, that voted in favor of the traditionalist model. Um, well, after, after that conference, everybody kind of knows, particularly when you run your mouth like I do, people kind of know how people voted. So, yeah, realignment kicks into overdrive at that point. So, yeah, I've lost some close friends who my wife says they still respect me, they don't understand me. Uh, but I've gained all these new friends that co- have come out of the woodwork, usually privately, to have conversation. So I, you know, life's still good because I still believe number one. You know, I, I've got two, four. I've got four previous associates over the course of my ministry that don't talk to me a lot now because we're on very different pages. 
you know, those four are part of that 47%. I was part of that 53%. You know, guys, that's why my wife, and I'm okay with it because, number one, but um, my wife has keeps saying, they still love you. Um, they respect you. They just don't understand you. And we don't. We don't understand each other, which is why coming out of 2019, an annual conference, 2019 general conference was in um, February. We had annual conference. Uh, in, um, in, in, in June. I know people that will not go back to Lake Junaluska. The pain was so bad in our annual conference. Um, I was okay because I'm, I really do kind of live up here in number one. I just see all this as part of the process. When a divorce happens, it takes the two parties a while to figure out a divorce is what's necessary. You, know, you don't all wake up suddenly one morning and everybody be on the same page with that. So the, the, the stuff we're going through is just helping people discern. Well, anyway, General Conference 2019, which General Conference 2019, then Annual Conference 2019, Annual Conference 2019, they were, that's where they were doing the vote. We were doing the vote to elect delegates for General Conference 2020, which didn't happen because of COVID. So we're electing delegates. That's always not a happy time. We're electing delegates... Well, two things went on during the election of the delegates, and y'all were there. Anybody else there? Annual conference, 2019. Yeah, you were there. Yeah, I was there. Yeah, I was there. Um, and I was fine. You know, people may think it's naivete, but I, I do kind of hang out number one up here. Um, two things that happened of great note. Well, the division was alive and well in the room at, at Lake Junaluska. But two things made it even more apparent. There was a gay pride parade at Lake Junaluska. Some people loved it, some people did not. Just to say that's not, shouldn't be the focus of, uh, that shouldn't be the church's focus. Um, but then in the, in the election of the delegates, um, it was pretty clear because everybody did their homework before the election of delegates. Now I had been elected to two general conferences, me and a couple other well-respected traditionalists, I don't like labels, traditionalists, orthodox, whatever, yeah, it became evident after about 25 ballots that they would have elected a blind monkey to go to general conference as a delegate before they would have elected any. You only had one traditionalist in your last delegation. This year, you have no traditionalist. They worked hard to make sure that none of us center-right would, would, would get elected, which is fine. My friends are furious because I didn't get elected. And Angela Pleasance didn't get elected, and people like that. I, I'm like, I'm, I'm fine. I, I'm not. Part of it was I still have PTSD from St. Louis. <laughs> we had to leave. Ask my wife sometime. My wife was sitting beside Bishop Leland's wife up in the stands. We're close friends. The last three hours, they shouted constantly at us so that we could not transact any other business. We had to leave under armed escort to get out of the building. And I learned later, I, I don't know if it's true or false, I learned later there were snipers on the buildings surrounding us in St. Louis. They were so concerned about um, the ramifications of us just keeping the stand that we've had since we became the United Methodist Church. So we didn't change. The only thing we changed, we did add... Um, because the people on the right were getting frustrated by people on the left. We did add a little bit more accountability issues to some of the stuff in the discipline. We haven't lived through it. We haven't done any of the accountability issues. We've sort of declared a moratorium. 
because uh, all of us, we know in our better moments, we don't like witch hunts. We don't like, so we really haven't done anything differently, but the stand is still there in the discipline. Well, coming out of all of that, two things happen. One, if you've not been in those venues at the general church level, and you come to me with something like, well, why can't we just all get along? I have a hard time understanding that. I mean, it's just, we've been split for since 1968, really, but definitely since 1972. So, yeah, I mean, I've, I've, just because of what I've lived through and experienced, um, what's coming is a good thing. So, and everybody else after 2019 pretty much knew that, which is why in the fall of 2019, we created, in good Methodist fashion, a tremendous committee, great committee, made up of people across the spectrum, theologically, well-respected theologically across the spectrum. We hired the, the number one mediator in the United States. Uh, we hired him for two reasons. He was number one mediator in the United States. His name's Feinberg. He's Jewish. So he didn't have a dog in this fight. He has no vested interest in the way that United Methodist Church goes. And so, and it was a wonderful, wonderful process. I know people, several, that were in the room as they worked out the protocol. That's what I will refer to it as, the protocol. Um, and I'll talk about that in a minute. I, they, as they worked out the protocol, they really worked out, and I believe, they worked out a, 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 a proposal to general conference that will really allow for an amicable separation um, and allow for a win-win situation the best you can do in a divorce. Uh, the mediator, that was the mediator's goal. It's going to be a win-win situation, which means both sides have to give up something that they want. Uh, I think that happened. I, I'm, I'm very positive of the protocol. It almost universally was um, accepted until people, until emotions have got involved in the last year. But I'm, I'm, I'm very fond of the protocol. And so the people who did the protocol, well-respected, said they would come out and talk to their own circles of influence to get everybody to support the protocol, to support the protocol unamended. Because if it starts getting amended, it's going to turn into a win-lose in one direction or another, a win-lose separation. Uh, I, all of us agree on one amendment coming from the Africans for some unusual reason. The cross and the flame... You know, our symbol, probably one around here somewhere. The cross and the flame means a whole lot on the African continent. You know, we've just had it since 1968. And we've already, some people have already taken a move to get rid of it because the cross and the flame, they say, reminds people too much of the KKK. So that's been proposed for years now. Which is why, if you look at the cross and the flame, it's one, it's one on the back of this sheet. You notice that purposefully... Um, if you look at it closely, the cross and the flame don't touch. That's not a cross on fire. They knew that in 1968 when they formed it. But anyway, Africans, for whatever reason, that symbol has a lot of power. And the flame here represents what? Holy Spirit. Oh, Spirit. Yeah, okay. Yeah, Holy Spirit and the cross. Anyway, so, sure. Is it about one side says, both sides seem to be saying that uh, homosexuals are invited into the church. However, one side says... 
They accept the discipline. And the issues of marriage and ordination. Yeah. But again, I'm, I'll, I'll even paint a picture of the two sides. Actually, there's three sides. I'll paint a picture of the three sides in a moment. Um, but again, that's why I'm saying it's not just that. But that's kind of the trigger issue. Has ha, has been the trigger issue um, for quite a while. Yeah. Yeah, take a break. Take a break. Um, quick break. Five minutes. Because I would love to hear some questions from you when I tell you what the protocol is going to offer you. It, it just goes back to 1968. You know, I, I would keep it just to just to fight the people who say it looks like KKK. two sides, actually three sides, uh, want that has led to the protocol. 
So the protocol was developed in, at the end of 19. If we had had general conference in 2020, I think it would have passed. I think we would have made church history of having the most amicable divorce possible. I remember one of the smartest things I heard uh, during the debate on the four general conference. One person stood up and said, you have, we have four options. Good marriage, bad marriage, good divorce, bad divorce. If you can't do the good marriage, what do you want? That's right. We all say that. But, every, you know, I do that with couples in America. You know, they say that on day one, then they may be killing each other in six months. But that's, that's just that's human nature. Anyway, so what the protocol allows, and, this, and I'll paint a picture of the, of the different sides. Well, let, me, let me get rid of the third side because they just, they, they're already gone because they say we're not going to satisfy them in any way. There's a group called... And I, I'm going to encourage you, I don't want to erase that because I want to get, leave that for tonight. Um, I'll encourage you to three websites. Because I'm not afraid of education. We have clergy that are afraid. They, there are people knowing about it. You know, like it's not happening. Like we thought 2019 would never come. You know, you can go to, go, well, if you want a really interesting experience, go to LMX. Let me look it up. Just so I always forget this .org or .com. You've got There's two listed in there. LMX is not listed there, is it? Probably GMC and UMC Next is listed. Yep, that's one. And then um, that may be the only one listed there. So yeah, that's one of them. GlobalMethodist.org. Go there. That's to the right. Uh, to the left, and we can just factor them out because this is a small group. LMX, uh, it's either .org or .com. LMX is the Liberationist Methodist Connection. Uh, they're the ones who are so, so extreme to the, to the left. We don't even speak the same. They don't even use our words hardly, but we certainly don't even speak the same language. And then there's a group called UMC Next. So maybe umcnext.org. If you just Google UMC Next, Liberationist Methodist Church, and Global Methodist Church, you'll get to three, three, three flavors. Um, but the UMC Next uh, tends to want to posit themselves as the center. Uh, their website doesn't say much. They, that will be what remains, what some of us call the post-separation United Methodist Church. Um, about the only thing they're going to say on their website is they like being United Methodist, and they want to, after they, can ha- after they can have a convening general conference, take out all the language from the discipline that, that has been problematic for them. So that's sort of the three sides. Global Methodist, post-separation United Methodist. Those are the people that are going to stick with the institution regardless. And then the Liberationist Methodist. They say they're gone regardless of what we do. There's no way we'll ever give them what they want. Um, so if the protocol basically says this, and it's pretty much written out there for you. Uh, let me give you um, the condensed version. You can, I encourage you to read this. Let me give you the condensed version that will answer the questions you probably have. For, for, for an amicable split to happen, the Methodist trust, we've got to do something about the Methodist trust laws. You've heard him mention it several times. We invented it in the 1790s to keep Calvinists from taking over our churches but it's still there. So the Methodist Trust Clause, uh, and you're seeing a, a huge fight over it now between the bishop and the biggest church in North Georgia Conference. 
The Methodist Trust Clause basically says this. I remember when I was district superintendent, I had to introduce churches to the Methodist Trust Clause because uh, I'd go, they were ready to leave, and I'd go chat with them and say, y'all ever heard of the Methodist Trust So they, they wait. They're in, they're in a waiting posture right now. The Methodist Trust Clause basically says the building and the assets and liabilities of any United Methodist Church are yours <coughs> as long as you stay part of the annual conference. As long as you stay part of the institution. Now, if you decide to leave the institution, you're building your assets. And for those of you here at Weston Memorial, we got some nice endowments. Your buildings and your assets and liabilities, we don't have any liabilities, would go to the annual conference. So before we could do anything about amicable separation, the protocol, if it, if it passes, I, I, I talked to a national leader this morning who still says we all still think it will pass, but there's some people that will do, I can't remember the, the word she used, they'll, they'll find some ways to torpedo it. Um, and I'll talk about that in a moment as I talk about what comes out of the protocol. But the protocol allows for, uh, to pass a general conference, there'll be like a two, three year period. Every annual conference, in our regional West North Carolina, every annual conference can decide do they stay with the UMC as it is, or do they go with the more traditionalist church. The protocol allows for $25 million of our assets, as you know, I met, we have assets. I think I've said we're the only people that own a building on Capitol Hill. Uh, but the protocol allows for $25 million to, to be set aside to create uh, the new, little more traditionalist. Um, um, uh, church, but the but the, the pro, but the protocol waived, waives the waves the uh, uh, Methodist trust clause for about three years. If your annual conference, why your annual, and we'll have some annual conferences that will stay UMC. I can name you, I think, the annual conferences that will go traditional. Now, you know, after the annual conference decides what they want to do, uh, local churches either can be okay with that or not. Uh, at the annual conference level, local church level, anybody can ask for a vote. So I, I've been around humans a while. Somebody will ask for a vote. I, I just, I can about name you there. I can go back over every church I've pastored and tell you who, uh, who asked for a vote. So there'll be a vote at the annual conference level. Um, and then every church will have to make the decision, do we stay with what our conference has done? Where they have chosen to say, just by virtue of the delegates. Or do we go the, to the other option? And then at that point, a local church can vote. We Methodists, we are, we, are um, we hate local church votes. But there, there have been options, there have been options in our history. Still are for certain things. This would be a local church vote. Um, the protocol says your local governing body, and this is important, all of this is part of how each of our sides sort of gave up stuff. Your, your local governing body and your local church can decide, will it be a 57% vote or a 51% vote? I'm of the opinion it should be 51%. For this reason, I, I hate conflict. None of us like conflict. Um, let's say we, everybody said no two-thirds vote. Because if you make it a two-thirds vote, 12 people in a church will work to get that third. And that would just exacerbate controversy. With a 57, and I think particularly 51% vote, 
I could about right now be in a district. I can go through my list. Of, I had 167 churches. I can about tell you which way they're going if it's 51% vote. So the other 20% either accepts the will of the congregation or, or moves on and finds something else. But that's why those votes are there. The local body can decide 51% or 57%. I will lobby for 51% because I think that it, that cuts down on the number of the amount of politicking for somebody to try to get. It's just I think everybody knows what 51% of the church would want to do. So then churches decide. Um, now, that's, that, there's, some other, there's some other stuff in, in the protocol, but that's, that's, most people want to talk about what happens to the local church. That's kind of what happens to the local church. If the protocol passes general conference, when general conference happens, that's the protocol. Um, I still think it's passing because everybody says we've got to bring this stuff in. Um, okay, let me talk about the protocol passing. Already, and this has been in the media, so you've got two sentences about this. Already, uh, the, the part of the family, church family, the center right, has um, said we're moving ahead. We've already produced two possible books of discipline that that convening conference of the new, that convening general conference of the new church can use to adopt what the book of discipline will be. Uh, you can go to the GMC website and read the proposed uh, book of discipline. There's actually a proposed book of discipline from the Wesleyan Covenant Association and a proposed book of discipline from um, uh, the Transitional Committee, who's a group out there to help churches make the transition. So you got two disciplines. Now what's really exacerbated things in the last year, because po the people that are want to remain UMC, they just, about the motion you can get out of them right now is we want to remain UMC. But the, but the people that will help form the new denomination, they have already put two proposed books of discipline in print um, that will help govern what the general conference will do. It includes things like no trust clause at all. Now right now the trust clause will be waived for like three years for churches to make a decision, but then it comes back into force if you're still UMC. But it, uh, the new disciplines in the, in the, on the right say no trust clause, Term limits for bishops. We've talked about that since the Methodist Protestants pulled out in the 1830s. No term limits for bishops. Right now, our bishops are elected for life, and that's another discussion. I can tell you how that can be problematic. Um, district superintendents. District superintendents will go back to the old title, presiding elder. And they might have the option, depending on the conference and the size of the conference, they might have the option of serving a church while they're serving on the bishop's cabinet. A cap on apportionments. If you've been Methodist for a while, you know what apportionments are. This church pays about $150,000 a year. Am I right? Close to right, George? I, I, again, you heard me say maths of the devil, but I try to look at the big rounded figures, but I think we pay about 150. Like 77 was half a year. Yeah, 77 was half a year, so around $150,000, because we're a large church. Your, your apportionments are based, by the way, not on your membership, but on your budget. So our apportionments, we pay about $150,000 a year. So um, um, the, the new proposals for the new church would cap apportionments at about half what they are now. 1.5% to the general church 0.5% to the conference. Um, 
trying to think of some other parts of it. Oh, consultation is spelled out. I mean, right now, and this is the issue in Georgia, right now, right now, um, the book of discipline just says meaningful consultation must happen when a clergy change occurs. Now, I've been a district superintendent. I've made those appointments. Um, you know, what Bishop Leland made us do, because he was a little nervous about being sued, we had to every year send, send a paper letter, old-fashioned paper letter, I'd send an old-fashioned paper letter to my 167 active pastors and say, would you like to set up a meeting this year for consultation concerning your appointment? Three-fourths of them say, no, I'm fine, forget about me. Now there's a fourth that'll say, yes, I'm going to talk about where I need to be. So we, we offered. You had to respond back to us um, and say, take me on the offer or say, no, finally. And we had to file that so we could prove consultation happened. Um, same with staff parish relations committees. Um, staff parish, if, a, if, a, if, a, if, an, if an appointment, if a clergy appointment is going to change, meaningful consultation has to happen with your staff parish. Now, now let me tell you about the real world. Uh, when I was this superintendent, and this is just the way it's always been, and some people are fine with the way it's always been. When I was this superintendent in, uh, with an office in Winston-Salem, I, I lived through two changes. And I love these people. I lived through two changes of appointment at Centenary United Methodist Church. Those people had me on speed dial. <laughs> they wanted to know if we were going to look nationally. They wanted me to know. They wanted me to let them know if we would look outside the annual conference for a possible pastor for their church. They wanted me to know if they could interview um, uh, that possible pastor uh, that we were going to send there. Um, and they were all calling me and telling me what their church needed. I finally said, "Put it on a half sheet of paper." They did. The staff parish put it on a what their goal, what their what their biggest desires for the church was, oh, they put on a half sheet of paper. That was a good exercise for them because I could tell by the phone calls they had about five pages of what they wanted the main focus of their church to be. So I said, put on a half sheet of paper. Anyway, so, yeah, in the real world, I ended up doing a whole lot of consultation with Centenary. My guess is West Memorial gets that same treatment. My guess is Myers Park, West Market Street gets that same treatment. Um, that, that's how meaningful consultation is defined for in that setting. Because they pretty much demand it. They want, they, uh, they want to know what we're going to do with them. Um, with local church, with, with clergy, um, we pretty much will call them up. And I think if I said this, I'll call you up on the third week of April and say, we have prayerfully discerned that you need to go to Ranger, North Carolina. And if there's silence on the other end of the phone, life is good. We actually make those phone calls together in a hotel because there's about 10% of those phone calls we have to go back together and say, well, I called that person and they haven't stopped crying since. I called that person and they said, well, my, my ex-wife's family is part of that church. So we have to go back to the drawing board. So in other words, if when we call the pastor, unless you push for consultation and I served under two different bishops. They both said the same thing. Don't tell them what you tell them in any way that implies it's the beginning of the conversation. <laughs> you tell them what you tell them to imply this is the decision. Um, yeah, we took away the language. We used to use the language that you could contest an appointment in writing to the cabinet. 
we, we stop that. Don't even use that language now. Complicates the life of the superintendents. So the point I'm making is um, consultation is, one bishop used to say in this conference, consultation, he'd laugh and say consultation is somewhere between negotiation and notification. Um, I've had both in my ministry. There's very much a negotiation coming here. Um, I, some of my churches, it was notification. Franklin, North Carolina. But here, there was negotiation. And we talked about it for a while. So it, it's just, to me, it's, it's unfair across the board. It's those who demand the consultation get it, and those who don't, don't. Well, like in one of the disciplines proposed, and we've been, we had members of this annual conference that proposed this to the general conference in the 1990s. We know the bishop has final say. We all agree with that. We have bishops. We all agree with that. We are itinerancy. We all agree with that. We all support women in ministry. We all agree with that across the board. Uh, but what we have said about consultation is, in one of the proposals for the new church, is that let's say Nick is leaving his church. As a district superintendent, I would give you like five real-life options. When I came to High Point to Archdale, the district superintendent I had at that point asked me, did I want Archdale or Lebanon? And I came and you know, made that drive around. I, you know, Lebanon's over there behind Publix. This was 1995. And I called my district superintendent up and I said, well, sir, if you ask my opinion, I'd rather have Archdale. And I knew the bishop had final say. I knew that things don't always work out. It's like puzzle pieces. I got Archdale, so I was happy. But I had, that was serious consultation. But anyway, like in the global Methodist churches or the WCA's uh, discipline, consultation is, you know, I'll offer you five churches. I know what churches are coming open in my district. I'll offer you these five churches. You can pray about, think about, and you can say to me, that's probably my first church choice. That'd be my second choice. Well, and, to, and on the church side, Episcopalians do this, by the way. It's, we haven't invented this. On the church side, I will, um, I will, I'll give you five options. One has to be female. One has to be ethnic minority. And y'all need to be Christian. And then, but you can, you can come back to the district superintendent and say, here's our first choice, here's our second choice, here's our third choice. Everybody knows the bishop has final say. But this, you know, I always liked information when I was making appointments. Um, anyway, so some of the new disciplines spell out consultation. Because right now, the only thing it says is meaningful consultation. That's why you got North Georgia happened. Evidently, what the bishop defines as meaningful consultation was calling them up. And the church, and that church is probably like centenary. For them, meaningful consultation historically has meant consultation and conversation, even negotiation. Um, yeah, by the way, I told Centenary, no, we will not look beyond the annual conference. Well, no, what I was instructed to tell Centenary was we will not look beyond the annual conference if we can find somebody in the annual conference to serve you. If we can't, because we, we made one of our pastors come back from Rochester who was serving on loan to Rochester. We made that pastor come back at one point to Centenary. But the, the, the short answer is no, we don't look. So there's really no negotiation. There's no negotiation. Um, anyway, so what's complicated the process that's made some emotions rise, particularly the people who their main goal in life is to preserve the UMC to some, some degree. Well, free market kicks in. Um, people are seeing what can be the option in a new denomination. Now, eventually, 
some stuff will change with the UMC. I think if the other option has no trust clause, I think the trust clause will have to go away eventually. I've been told for 35 years, once the trust clause, that's what Episcopalians have been doing. They've spent $60 million on legal fees between um, uh, churches and, and, and conferences or dioceses. Uh, as to who owns the property. We said we were not going to do that. Protocol was our, we were not going, we we're better than the Episcopalians. <laughs> we're not going to do that. There's nothing Christian about that. Um, but some people are about ready to fight like the Episcopalians. But um, anyway, so um, the, 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 if the trust calls ever were taken to a secular court, a secular judge is going to look at you and say, who built the building? Who painted it? Who maintained it? Who paid the power bill? And it goes to who now, you say? Secular courts will not understand. What happened in the Episcopal Church, they just never, it ne the Supreme Court wouldn't hear the case. So it was sort of decided state by state by state Supreme Courts. We say we don't want to do that. Um, so that's why the protocol, if it passes, waives the trust clause for a period of time to let churches... Uh, make their decision. So obviously, conferences, churches, and clergy will have to make their decision. So when I just said to you, what I said to you about restructuring, reformation, new way of doing church, that's part of what I say to say it's not just about human sexuality. Now, on, on the center right, on the center right, some of you may remember a sermon I preached recently where I talked about some of the same terms being used differently across the church. From center right, uh, when we mean Bible, we mean the Word of God. Center left, when they mean Bible, they mean the record, um, the record of human beings, the fallible record of human beings' sacred encounters with the divine. We mean different things. Um, when we talk about Jesus, we mean the unique Son of God, Nicene Creed, true God of true God. Um, the further left you get, like in the Liberationist Church, he's a great teacher. They love his compassion. They love how he hung out at the margins. They love how he um, took care of marginalized people. They hung out how he, how he, they love how he hung out with people that none of us want to hang out with. That's all true, but that's more the historic Jesus than the cosmic, sacred, divine, redeemer, Lord of universe. I, I prefer to keep all that together. But if, as you go across the spectrum, it, it starts morphing. Um, human nature. I, I believe in the sinfulness of human beings, and that's why we need grace. We need God. Jesus is essential. The further you go left, the more you run into human nature that needs to be affirmed and celebrated as is. You know, give everybody a trophy and say you're perfect as you are. You are perfect as you sprouted out of your mother. And here's your trophy. Um, anyway, so human nature, we, we, we mean different things by human nature. Um, let's see, there's Bible, there's God. God, over here, further right, center right, when we mean God, we're specific. People like Karl Barth helped us on this. We mean the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. We mean the God of Jesus Christ. We mean the God of the, of the Bible. We mean uh, the God who has been revealed as Father, Son, Holy Spirit. We mean the God that's been revealed as Trinity. We're specific about that. The further left you go, 
God can just be the supreme power, the supreme being, the man upstairs, the force of, I got a clergy that always calls it the force. The force be with you. Uh, he's in the Star Wars. It's the force. It's, it's, it's the love that undergirds the universe. And all that stuff may be true, but over here, further center right, we're kind of specific on what we mean when we, Carl Barth said, when we say God, we mean Jesus. We know what God looks like. So on all of these, so that's why I cross this, now, and that's why we fought, there's a, there's a difference. Again, in the historic church, another thing that you need to remember is what you know is your home congregation will probably always be what you know is your home congregation. They could do something in Minneapolis and whenever General Conference happens, regardless of what happens in Minneapolis in General Conference, regardless of what vote any local church takes, you know your congregation. I mean, we've had this same stand on human sexuality since 1972. Now, do you think the city of High Point has experienced this congregation as mean-spirited, narrow-minded, exclusive? Do you? I don't think so. Like I said, that until it got real public that we reaffirmed our stand, so a lot of Methodists didn't even know what was there, just kind of like the trust clause. They don't know what's there. So your congregation is not going to change overnight. There'll be some realignment. People who just can't go with where their congregation's gone. But a lot of people, as I said at the first meeting, a lot of people choose their church not because of theology and doctrine or even practice or worship. They choose their church because of who's there. They choose the church because of geography. So, you know, regardless of what happens at the general church level, that doesn't mean... And that's why you see some really conservative people hanging out in some flaming progressive churches. You see some uh, very liberal people hanging out in some conservative churches because it's about the people. You know, I know one congregation here in High Point, um, and it's very public, so, I mean, again, you're getting my bias. I know one congregation here in High Point fairly close by, that on Easter Sunday, they had a rainbow banner and flag on their altar. Now, you know, for me, that's problematic. I don't think anything should be on that altar except that which represents Jesus. I don't think an American flag, rainbow flag, um, I just don't think it, it's part, it should be part of that. But, I, but the point I'm making, I know some people go to that church, they're very traditional. Now they do have it. They, now they're, they're, they feel like they keep getting pushed, like when they show up on Easter Sunday and there's a rainbow banner on the altar. They, they are tired of getting pushed. But there's some very traditional people in, some, in very progressive congregations. You know, I was, when I was this superintendent, I had Winston-Salem, so I had, I had Green Street Church. Green Street Church is the leading progressive congregation in, in, in the South. They made, they made CNN a decade ago because of some of the ways they were doing church. And I was their district superintendent. I guess you figured out I don't, I'm, I'm not, I guess you figured out I'm not a flaming liberal. Anyway, I was their district superintendent. I loved them. I worshiped with them. They did great. They do great jazz music, high energy in their worship service. I loved them. I helped them in every way I could help them. And what I used to say to them was, I, I believe every city needs one Green Street Church. And that's what happened to Green Street Church. It was at the point of closing. Then they decided how they, they decided the population they could reach out to. They did a good job of it, and that's a thriving congregation. You know, they don't do Bible studies. That's just not part of their culture. 
Um, they, 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 they would do a study on, they would do a study on heterosexism. You know what heterosexism is? So you should have my children. Heterosexism is the new, you know what racism is, sexism is. Heterosexism is the new ism. It's, it's the sin of believing that anything about heterosexuality is at any degree or level more standard or more appropriate than heterosexuality. That's heterosexism. So, yeah, brace yourselves for that one. So they'll do a study at Green Street Church on heterosexism. I bless them. Do it. Every church needs one Green Street Church. But, you know, but I, I can't see reforming a denomination in that image. And most of our people can't see that. Um, questions? And if you need to leave, you can leave, but I hate to throw all this stuff on top of you. I, I have a real quick one. Mm-hmm. On this protocol, under the protocol details, mm-hmm. it, let's say um, our church, Western World, decided that they were going to disagree with the alignment mm-hmm. um, of the angle conference. Mm-hmm. It says the church leadership in a it can, by the decision of their church leadership administrative board, mm-hmm. take the church-wide vote. So that means that the leadership... It, whatever the, yes or no? To the vote. To the vote. To the, the, vote. the church. Yeah, every one of our... The reason the language is that way, all of our churches kind of have different structures now. We have a church council. Church council would vote. Yes or no on the vote. You know, if your church council voted no on a vote, I don't know that that would end well. I mean, sometimes you just have to use common sense and leadership. So is that just a ratification, basically? Well, it's either, well, you don't have to vote if you stay with your annual conference. And that's where some clergy will say, just do nothing and everything stays the same. The post-separation United Methodist Church, after there's this exodus, Nothing stays the same. That certainly won't stay the same. But now some clergy to try to just keep you from even having a conversation will say that. Just don't vote. Just, just accept what the conference doesn't. You don't have to do anything at the local church. Uh, and, and everything will stay the same. I hear that. That's just not reality. Yeah, how, many, how, how many American conferences will vote global? And how many will vote the other one? Now, I'm not a... Over the last few years, I've learned to quote Amos the prophet a lot. I am not a prophet, nor the son of a prophet. I think Kentucky will go global Methodist. I think Alabama, West Florida will go global Methodist. I think Mississippi will go global Methodist. I don't know the other churches outside of my jurisdiction very well. That's my southeast jurisdiction. Um, I think West Pennsylvania, whatever that's called these days, will go to Global Methodist. So there will be some. Texas. There's four conferences in Texas. There may be one. I mean, you got some of the most conservative. The way it's falling out is some of your most conservative churches are your biggest churches. It's that way in this April conference. Some of your most conservative, you know, wonder why some of our most conservative churches become our biggest churches. Anyway, go think that. I can give you names of churches in this conference. Um, Texas has some major, major churches. But then I've sat at the table with delegates from West Texas. I, I can't get a read on Texas. Um, and it's, it's the way it happens. West North Carolina, whenever we would take a conference vote on this before people got agitated, energized, 
came to organizing. When we would take a conference vote when nothing was done in preparation of that conference vote, every, if you understand what I'm saying, every conference vote in this conference was about 60-40 to um, stand with our traditional views. And that was um, most, and thank God for the laity. Uh, that's why it was 60-40. But, um, yeah, there's a lot of homework done in the 2019 annual conference as to who the at-large delegates were, particularly. Because at-large at delegates are basically are chosen by district superintendents. At-large, because you have to have an equal number of clergy and laity. And like here, when I was at the Valley Winston, I had to find 103 at-large delegates every year to take the place of professors and counselors and retired pastors, because you have to have an equal representation. So it's hard to find 103 people who will go to represent the laity to balance out the equation. So I used to just, um, every charge conference, I threw out a legal pad and said, I said, you'll go to the annual conference, put your name on that. And I still had to look for about 30 or 40 people who would do it. What happened in 2019, after we did 2019 in St. Louis and it came back to the local level, and the district superintendents and district administrative assistants, they all of a sudden paid attention as to who they asked to go to general conference. And I go to the annual conference. And I know people in this annual conference who have been asked to go as delegates uh, at large for decades. All of a sudden they weren't asked in 2019. So that's why but normally when there's no planning or preparation at annual conference, uh, so I remember one of the votes that we were forced to that really came down to this issue. I was the superintendent, the bishop made district, the bishop makes, the district superintendent sat down front so he can have his eye on us, so he can get us when he needs us. Anyway, I'm sitting down front. Clergy tend to sit down. When I stood contrary to everybody around me, I felt like a long range of I turned around. There was all the laity standing with me, and, and they prevailed. That was the 60%. Um, me and one of the clergy down there right in the very front stood. Um, I don't want to paint the picture. There are a lot of traditional clergy in this conference. They're, they're, everyone's calling me every week now. There's a lot of traditional clergy in this annual conference. Um, but there's a whole lot on the other side. And I knew leaving St. Louis under the harm guard, I knew we had poked the beast. I knew we had awakened. We had awakened agitators. They have been slowly trying to get their way quietly for decades. Well, we, we, we awakened them. So you believe the way the delegates are stacked right now that the Western North Carolina Conference would vote to stay with the post-UNC? Well, the other North Carolina Conference do. Same way. There will be significant numbers that will not. Um, I've lived the world. For whatever reason, bishops and cabinet now are trying their best to figure out numbers. I think, I'm not a prophet nor the son of a prophet. I know this conference well. Now you have to keep in mind, some churches will choose to do absolutely nothing. Some churches make an issue of it. Some churches will wait to the last minute. I think you know, there will probably be 30% of, of this conference. You're fine, you're fine. I think there will be 30% of this conference that will go with the traditional Group. You can make the make the break from the, from the conference book. Makes a break from the conference does, yeah. But I, I'm making a prediction this conference will stay progressive. Um, yeah. 
And again, keep in mind, conservative Methodists look a whole lot like moderate Baptists. I mean, you know, you have to keep in mind, those of us on the right in the Methodist church, 30 years ago, I was a liberal, and I haven't changed. Culture's changed. I have a friend who is a member of this church who said to me one time, I'm not for going with anything that has global in it. And I thought, this is not like one world order. This is not the political thing. But in her mind, because the word global, she associated it with the one world order. And I, I said, I wasn't thrilled, you know, there was a lot of speculation ahead of time as to what the name would be. I was sort of Methodist Episcopal Church, but nothing was happening either. Um, you know, the thing about global Methodists, it does declare this, this is the global group. It's not the American. Right. Um, but the good thing about it is you can go back to pre-1968, you can just have the word Methodist on your sign. You don't, you don't have to work global out there. Um, I mean, a lot of churches don't even use the word united now. You know, you, you don't, I mean, if you do our full name, people have to say five words every time they call it the church. And most of our churches now don't do much with denominations because denominations, um, allegiance to denominations is detrimental. That's why when we founded the Covenant Church back in the 80s, that was the first time one of our churches said Covenant Church, a United Methodist congregation. This church did that back in the early 20s with um, Chuck Wilson. You know, so most of us have, don't, we don't fly our denominational flag real high anyway, for lots of reasons. For lots of reasons. Jeff, uh, yeah. most of the the controversy seems to be over sex and money. How would you say the percentage breaks? Is it more heavily 